Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Hello, everybody. Good evening. It's Thursday evening. It's the Smart Connector Group, and we're going live on the Connection Central strand with Matt Sedell. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Jane. Thanks for inviting me. I'm nervous. Yeah. Oh, no. Nothing to be nervous about. It's great to have you here. Um, So for anybody that doesn't know Matt, I'm going to let him introduce himself in a minute and tell you what he's been up to. But we've had some great chats beforehand we spoke earlier on today and um, Matt you had to escape very quickly didn't you because there was an incident wasn't there there was a bit of an incident but it was I was escaping from our phone call because I had to get out because all these police were there police, um, police. I wasn't escaping from the police yes okay so you have to, yeah so you have to watch until the end of the interview to find out what Matt did and why he was escaping from the police this morning. I wasn't escaping from the police. I had to have to hang up on you. Yes, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, (laughs) anyway, to find out what happened, we will tell you at the end of the interview. So you have to watch all the way through, don't you? Yes, all right then. So I'll do a little introduction and then Matt, I'll I'll hand it over to you and we can talk a little bit more. So. Uh, Matt's a serial entrepreneur and he's also a renowned property developer and this is how I met him because you were actually uh, running one of the flagship, well I would say the flagship Progressive Property Network event a few years ago called uh, PPN Knightsbridge, weren't you Matt? Yep, so I started Knightsbridge in 2015. Yes. And um, the reason I did it was because uh, there was a large network of people there and I wanted to plug into that network so I could meet people like you, which is how I met you. Yes. Um, but I, I didn't really go the traditional route. So I hadn't done like all progressive training and all the rest of it, but I just saw that they wanted hosts. And I thought if I could have a piece of London that I could, and, and if I could have some autonomy and do it the way that I want to do it, a bit of flexibility, then that could be really good. And uh, I approached them and said, I, I reckon I could do a London event for you guys and it could be really good. So it was, so I, I actually bought the franchise for the West London piece of what they were doing. And it was really good because they let me kind of, it yeah, was, it. yeah, it absolutely was because I think yours was the only progressive property event at the time that wasn't about selling from the stage. It was all about creating a quality experience for the people that, that came. Yeah. And, it, and because of that, it just took off like a rocket. I banned people from selling courses from the stage because I thought it was not quite cool <laughs> yeah i know i know i i don't know that whole selling from the stage thing it was like really really big for a while and and i think it was uh it's very manipulative it's what i call scarcity or manipulation marketing and i'm not a big fan of it myself and i just think if you create value for people then you you actually build a relationship you don't put them under pressure and they're more likely to become your your customer for life. That's that's my view anyway. And I it's think it's a bit like once you know how the magic trick works, the magic trick doesn't really work anymore. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. What else have you got up your sleeve? 
exactly, exactly. So um, since then, Matt, you've also started up the Premier Property Development Club. If, I don't know if you describe it that way, but... Uh, if I do, I think I'd sound a bit big-headed, but some people say it's the best of what it does. Uh, I, I, I'll take that as a compliment. Okay. And of course, you are a developer yourself with your um, property development business, Opulen, that I believe specialises in, is it sort of exciting listed buildings as opposed to... Well, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I started Opelin in 2000 and at the end of 2011, 2012. Yeah. And Opelin started buying houses in Reading. I bought lots of houses in Reading. Mm -hmm. And that did really well because price in Reading shot up after I finished the portfolio. And I did some projects in London. But actually, I, I tried to do, I tried to buy, I bought a lot of property in 2016 because of the Brexit vote. Yes. And that didn't really go very well for me because we were supposed to vote and stay in the EU, but we voted to leave the EU. And the 12 million pounds worth of property that I believed I was going to develop never materialized. So that was a big challenge for me. Mm. And then the club, I started the club because I didn't want to be buying property in 2017. I, I didn't, I didn't believe in it. Yeah. I was worried about Brexit. I was worried about the economy. So I started Candor, which is the club for business owners, whether like investors or developers or people that own businesses, as long as they're actively involved in deals between 1 million upwards, then um, those are the people we work with through the club. But you're right, I've done a, I've done a, few, I've done a bunch of things. And if I've them all off, it will just confuse everyone. Serial entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Matt, just tell us about your latest um, initiative, because that's very exciting, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, the story behind that is quite interesting, because... Um, around the middle of last year, I was thinking, right, we've got all these people in this club who are really good at what they do, whether they're developing property or running some other sort of property business. And um, I don't make lots of money out of the club. We don't we don't charge lots and lots of money to be a member of the club. It, it makes a, a reasonable profit. We give we give a large piece to charity. But I wanted to do something with all that knowledge and expertise. And I started looking around at what skills I could learn so I could do something with it. So since about August last year, I've been discreetly working in the background saying, like, I think 2020 is going to be the year when everything goes online. And I didn't realize there was going to be a global pandemic and that it was going to happen quite as quickly as that. But for the last six months or longer, I've been working on building an online property education business that doesn't necessarily have to teach everyone how to... Um, make a million pounds in 12 months and buy a Ferrari and then run your boss over in it and give them a two finger salute because I think about that really is it I think everyone who's got a good job or a healthy business should be doing something with property because that's where I've like you just make loads of money <laughs> you know when I fixed up my house we made seven or eight hundred thousand pounds profit and, and that was untaxed because it was our home and, yeah. and Reading went up by a million pounds and these other flats I bought in the credit crunch went up by, you know, and I didn't do much other than just buy the stuff. <laughs> well, um, you know, do it up. <laughs> buy it and do well, it. I might put some kitchens in and stuff, but, um, but I think everyone should learn a bit about property. And it doesn't have to involve going to a hotel once a month to learn, which is why I've been building it all online. Yeah, and I think the online education is the way to go because I think this lockdown has certainly made me realise that we spent so much time travelling when really we didn't have to. I mean, it's lovely to network and to meet people face to face. 
And of course, that is something that I, I miss. But from the point of view of learning and education, actually online is often better. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. So a lot of what I do now ties back to what I used to do. And the, the business I started when I was in my 20s that used to tra trace the missing heirs to inheritance. Yes. That got whacked by websites like Ancestry.com. Uh -huh. We used to search all these microfiche to find all the births and the marriages and the deaths. We used to pull, they're all split into quarters in alphabetical order. And you, you flick through and you find the, the piece of plastic that's got 100 pages on it. And you pull it out and you put it into the microfiche reader and then you scroll down and you find it. It was really inefficient. And it's no wonder we made loads of money by hiring really smart graduates and ex-cops and stuff. But when Ancestry.com came along and digitized the whole lot, which I was actually also doing privately for my own team, Yes. That changed everything. And there's nothing that's so scientific about investing in property and fixing it up that you have to travel to a hotel once a month to learn it. You can just be told in a module. And if you can make that so efficient for your clients and give them the answers and like your job becomes making it as simple as it possibly can be, mm -hmm. then, then you're into a different sort of competition. And um, I didn't see anyone competing like that yet with no. me i saw a lot of fluff <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i i think the thing about it is that to a certain extent property is simple but it's also it is risky if you get it wrong isn't it so it's important to get the balance right between making it easy for people to understand but also making them understand that there are risks and where do the risks lie yeah and 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 it's competitive like you need to be able to outperform the other people who are trying to do it and you need to know how they're going to screw up so that you can avoid that um, yeah what are the main things we're going to talk about tonight jane i'm intrigued because we're already talking about property and we're not meant to i know that's right yeah <laughs> we'll get off that subject that boring subject <laughs> that we always talk about <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we are going to talk, okay, right, so the first thing that we're going to talk about is uh, we're going to go back to your business kin, okay, yeah. so this is the one that we were talking about because you've got a couple of funny stories. So Matt, just tell us about this business and why did you decide to launch a business that matched heirs with the missing, their missing millions? So that idea from? All through my 20s, I wanted to start my own business. Mm -hmm. and I didn't really have much money and I didn't have any track record and I didn't really have any meaningful experience and I didn't know if anyone was going to back me and I didn't know what the hell to do. And every now and then in my 20s, I'd see someone making a break for it and starting his own business. And I'd, I'd be immediately on their case, like, has he done that? What's he done? How's he doing it? How much is it going to cost? But I just, th things for me actually really um, ramped up in 2003, I tragically lost my dad, um, which is, yeah, it's probably not a story for now, but he was, my father was killed in an accident. And I decided that life was far too short. And my dad had always said, if you want to make lots of money and be successful, don't get a well-paid job because you'll never leave it. Right. And my dad was, he was a pilot. He was, a, he was a British Airways pilot. Mm -hmm. um, so he wasn't like me, like, wanted to start his own business and all the rest of it. He just wanted to fly planes. Yes. Um, but after his accident, he was only 52 when he died. And um, I thought, I thought, 
I just saw how fragile life was and how quickly it can go. Yes. Um, and um, I'm one of four boys. Two of my brothers took it really badly and were pretty badly cut up about it. And one of my other brothers and I kind of seemed to handle it a bit better. But I, I just got this ferocious fire in my belly. Um, and I grieved, I grieved for, for, well, not, not a long period of time. I was heartbroken about it, but for a couple of months I was grieving, but then I just really became determined to, to start my own business and become my own, just captain of my own destiny. And I just started writing lists of, of what people were doing. Like, could I do this? Could I do that? Could I do that? And one of my cousins explained what a cash flow statement should look like with all the months like that and your expenses across the top and your total expenses there and your in income above that. I was like, that makes a lot of sense. And then you can start putting in the volumes and the numbers. And once you start learning how to build a simple cash flow appraisal, you're like, okay, hold on a minute. Like, what would, what, what, what would work and what would be the obstacles and the startup costs and everything? So, um, I just became really obsessed, uh, really obsessed. You were bitten by the bug. I don't know why I was so driven, but I think my older brother was always smarter than me and it just really fucking annoyed me. And, uh, excuse my French. Um, but I, I came up with a few options and a, a good friend of mine worked for a business that used to trace these missing heirs. And she said, there's loads of money doing this. You should do what these guys do. She'd actually left and was doing something else. And um, and long story short, we ended up starting the business together and we were 50-50 partners. I'd have done it very differently if I did it again now. Would you? Yeah, so at the beginning, the, the government used to release this list of unclaimed inheritances at midnight on a Wednesday night. Yeah. And, um, and they used to say how much they thought, basically you used to get the date of death, the name of the person who died, the town in which they died, and they'd also estimate the value of the estate. And the big, the big inheritances usually involved a property. The bigger ones involved a property in London. Um, you'd obviously have to knock off any inheritance tax and whatever, but um, but there'd, there'd always be like three cases that were about 300 grand, then 100 grand, and then they'd, they'd drop away fairly quickly. And we just used to, we just used to go after the 50,000 pound unclaimed inheritances. Yes. Track down the heirs and, and you'd, you'd get the missing heirs to sign a contract where you get a percentage of the inheritance. So Fair for the first month we were making money because I just found this opportunity and then I just smashed it as hard as I could for eight years. Yeah, a fairly straightforward business model really, isn't it, Matt? Uh, is it? I don't know. In principle it was, but there was no barrier to entry. No. And, and there was competition and you had, we, did a lot of, we did a lot of phone bashing. I mean, we were on the phone to neighbours all day every day trying to find out information and every call was a persuasion exercise. Right. We find heirs all over the world. Eventually, I had twenty-five ex-cops working for me. But if you got if you got beaten, you got nothing. Wow. And you couldn't get beaten. Amazing, amazing. And before we started talking, Matt, you were telling us about your crazy ride down the M1 at how many miles an hour was it? 80, 80 miles an hour. I was driving down the motorway. Outrageous. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite that, but anyway. <laughs> it was very quick. There were no other cars around. Yeah, you've got to state it publicly, so we'll leave it at that, right? But uh, anyway, so, so tell us tell us the, um, the the best story then from that time. There's loads of good stories, but one of, one of the biggest cases we ever did with, with the air hunting business called Kin, um, I 
Actually, I woke up in the middle of the night by by chance. Uh, my flatmate had come home, and I thought I'd slept in on a Thursday morning. Was going to be late for work, which never happened, by the way. And because we were meant to be in the office like six o'clock in the morning, and it was it was just after midnight. It was half past midnight. I thought, oh, I'll fire up my laptop, which in those days used to take like twenty minutes, and I'll and I'll download the cases and see if there's anything big. And I downloaded all the cases, and we had this piece of software that would pull all the cases off the Treasury's website and give them to you with the largest case at the top. And there was, there was, a, there was one on there which was <clears throat> four million pounds, and they'd never advertised an unclaimed inheritance that large before. And the, the person who passed away had passed away in London, and the name was a reasonable name. It wasn't like Jones or Davies, which would be really difficult. Um, it was, it was what well, I can't remember what the surname was, to be I tell you. It's actually on the Daily Mail's website, which I've got open on another. On another page here, but um, but anyway, I, I got in my car and I drove to the office and I started looking up the marriages and looking up the births and um and I found her parents' marriage and then I did this long birth search and for ten years there were no sign of any brothers and sisters okay. and then suddenly these two brothers popped up in the New Forest but she'd been born in Cheshire and I was like oh god I don't know if they're brothers or not so I went back to the marriage records to try and find their parents getting married which I couldn't. So I therefore deduced, like, well, I can't find their parents getting married, so they must just be, like, much younger brothers, or even though it looks a bit unusual. And to cut a long story short, I, I couldn't find one of them. It turned out he lived on a boat in Milwaukee. But I did find another. I found one of the other brothers, and he was on the Isle of Wight. Oh. And uh, I figured if I could get to his house before any of the others could even phone him, uh, I might get a contract. So I... I I, I took I, I always had some blank contracts with me and they were some of them were at five percent of the inheritance, ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty, and twenty-five. Okay. And so I grabbed the whole selection because I didn't know what the story was gonna be. And it turned out this guy had never known his long lost sister and he hadn't seen her in all his life. Uh she'd gone off and left home at sixteen and worked as a model and married a couple of very wealthy guys and died. She'd left everything in her will. To her husband who already passed away and therefore her family were potentially going to inherit this four million pounds which actually turned out to be 9.8 million quid wow That's um beautiful for them yeah but then i'm it wasn't easy to find him and i had to drive very fast to get the boat to the isle of wight and i managed to get there on a boat and then um I don't know. I don't, there's so many parts of this story. I don't know where to go to first. But long story short was there was absolutely no emotional connection. There was always a chance that a will would turn up and he wouldn't inherit anything anyway. And we'd have to put together the report and put a claim in for him and represent him and everything. And I thought if I hand this guy a five percent contract, I'm going to regret that for the rest of my life. So I pulled out the twenty-five, and as I passed it to him, he took it and he goes, "Okay, dope. And where do I sign?" And as I passed the pen, my hand was shaking. <laughs> and he said, he goes, I'm just going to sleep on this one, I think. I was like, absolutely fine. I've got an envelope for you. Here's the envelope. And uh, the, the point of the story was the Daily Mail caught him up. Uh, they were right behind me. Not right behind me. It took him like, I was there first thing on Thursday morning. And I phoned the guy at five o'clock on Friday evening to make sure everything was all right. He goes, yeah, all fine. I'm going to sign. I spoke to my brother. I'll put it in the post this weekend. And it must have been an hour later, the Daily Mail turned up, put a bottle of champagne in his hands and took photos and said, you've inherited £4 million, you're rich, here's a photo. And uh, I spoke to him on the Monday and I said, I saw you in the newspaper at the weekend, I, I guess my contract's not coming back. He goes, no, sorry, Matt, I, I don't need any help. 
Oh. And uh, I put him in touch with some solicitors that I knew. Actually, that's how I I know he ended up inheriting nine point eight million pounds. Really? Well, well, that's that's quite a story, really, isn't it? It's it kind of it must have been pretty disappointing at the time. But did it did it ever come back? That you you made that effort? Did you ever stay in touch, or did he ever come back to you for anything? Uh, yeah, he did actually. I did speak to him again. Partly because the relationship was good, and that's how I used to sell. Yeah. Like he, he said to me, like, I need to know who it is that's died. And I said, well, I obviously can't tell you who it is that's died, because otherwise there's no point in me doing what I do, and I do what I do in good faith. And yeah. you've got a 14-day cooling-off period. It's all in the terms, and, and, and that, that, you know, that's how we do what we do. And, and, um, and I think that's why we were successful as well, because we didn't try and bullshit people into signing contracts that they might not want to sign. Yes. I, you know, there were other contracts I negotiated that were worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, and I didn't do it by lying. In fact, I did it by being honest and then explaining when I couldn't answer questions that would compromise my position, and people respected that. I mean, it did mean that we didn't necessarily win every contract, but it also meant that we negotiated contracts away from other people that were trying. Something happened there for a moment, but anyway. I thought you were going to cut me off because my stories are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> But integrity is really, really important. And that's always a quality that I've associated with, with you. And I think if you treat people well and if you're honest and straightforward with them, then you are always going to go further in business than if you try and just shaft somebody or, or, or lie, basically. And, and Yeah. I think, I think the best thing you can do in any sort of sales is, or the worst thing you can do is sound like a salesperson. So all these people that phone up and they're like, hello, can I speak to Mr. Sidell? And then launch into their pitch. Just wasting leads and burning through opportunities. Definitely. You need to just talk to people and strike up a conversation. We, we also need to believe in what you're doing. If you don't believe in it, you're never going to be able to sell it, are you? No, no, definitely not. So Matt, let's get on to the subject of brand because this is something again that we were talking about today. And what what I was saying to you earlier is that I actually put a post on LinkedIn this morning about naming, and it's very unusual in property to have some very imaginative names. And this is something that you've obviously come up with. In fact, all of your um, businesses they've all had very unusual and interesting names which of course I believe are, if you can evoke some kind of emotion with it, with a name, then, then your brand is more interesting and more mysterious than if you just, if it just does what it says on the tin. And that, that was my post this morning. And so I'd love to find out about, about your thoughts around naming and how you came up with these unusual and quite evocative names like Candor and Atropolis and so on. Where, where did you get the inspiration for those names from? I think the best name so far has been Kin. Although when we started, Kin was Kin UK Limited and we called ourselves Kin UK Limited and our domain name was kinuk.com, which actually spells Kinnock, okay. uh, which sounds a lot like the politician. And but, but at the beginning, brand wasn't important to us. At the beginning, what was important was, can we make money doing this? And have I left a well-paid job for a good reason? And we actually did 300,000 pounds worth of contracts. Right. And then we ma managed to find the people who owned the domain name uh, kin.co.uk. And I went in using a Hotmail email address and paid them not very much money for it. And we started using that. And then we started to build a brand. Um, 
part of the reason I think the brand was important was because we were approaching people cold. They had no idea who we were. We needed the brand to be like a trustworthy brand. But also, if you're going to build a team, they need to want to work for the brand. Your brand's got to have something about it to attract good people into the business. Um, and and I, I think that's really important. But most of the time, I've just been trying to make sure that I've come up with some name that's unique so that I can protect it in some way and and give myself a bit of space to, to you know, build a reputation. Um, it's not easy, though, is it? Have you tried to name anything recently? It takes bloody ages now. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of big on on names. So I've come up with lots of names for my businesses and my events. So I had a mindset event called Love the Mojo, which is, is a name I'm still quite fond of actually. And then um, obviously the Smart Connector is my business now. Then my property business was Invest Develop Capital Partners, which I quite liked, but I think it, it led people to think it was much more. Uh, much sort of bigger than it really was because it was really only just a little property business but anyway that that was quite fun um and uh just just trying to think i mean i'm just constantly coming up with names so i really like it but um i'm interested to know where where you got the the name tropolis from because to me it conjures up the acropolis it's it almost has a classicism about it um was that your intention it's a shortened version of Metropolis, which stands for the capital of a town or a region. And I thought it had sort of property type connotations, but it was a, it's, it's essentially, it's a made up word. It's a unique name. Uh, there is no other Tropolis out there, which meant we could get a slightly better the main name and the rest of it. But um, I played around with a lot of names. There were a lot of names I wanted to use for, really? for the next business um yeah loads of them i went back and forth and doing all sorts of searches i'd write a long list yeah. uh, probably in a spreadsheet and i would have various tabs open um so i could search um just do a google search i could search company's house or the obviously the trademarks register and even when i thought i had something that looked like it was clear on all of that um I'm, and i'd be like ferociously holding down command and clicking 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 so it right clicks and opens on a new tab click 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 and just look and look and look and um and i think and then you play and you swap a letter around and then you see how it actually looks on a font in front of you on the screen because some words just look just look crap and you don't want to wear that looks crap it's got to look good yeah um and eventually uh i must have tried like hundreds of names and antropolis was sitting there and i thought i thought oh this one looks clear and this one looks like i can use it candor was slightly different um because candor does is a different spelling of the word candor as in to be totally honest and frank with people. And that's, you know, really does represent the club's values uh, because the property industry, and I think everyone would agree with this, has more than its fair share of hyperbole and BS. And for me, it was really important just to cut through all that. Because um, unless you make a real effort to cut through it, you kind of actually just encourage it. Yes. And you don't want to be doing that. But, um, yeah, I, I hope people don't think that I try too hard with the names, but I do think it's important to build a brand. I think it really helps to attract good people into your business. Uh, for obvious reasons, they're going to have that on their email address and maybe on their business cards and what have you. 
Um, but I mean, you're much more of an expert at all this than I am. I mean, the, the brands speak of your values and the fonts that you use and the colors and the tone and everything you do. It all comes across, doesn't it? Yes, and uh, because we have had, we have been talking prior to this interview, one of the things that we were talking about is that um, actually I saw a comment by somebody who was is quite a well-known property developer and it was all, it was really saying there is no place for brand in property. Property is not about brand. Um, and Try then tell that to Tony Pidgeley who runs Barclay Homes. I, I don't think we'd yeah. agree with you. I know, I know, but um, he he was saying it's just you know fluffy stuff. It's it's people putting fluff and spin on something that is really just a very basic kind of service. It's like, well, no, I, I completely disagree because brand is not just about a visual identity or about a name. Of course, those are manifestations or representations of your brand, but they're also very much about your behaviour as an organisation. Yeah. That is. An important part of your brand, your customer experience, you obviously as a leader, and um, because you are a founder of your businesses, the way that you, for example, prioritize um, speaking up, telling the truth, um, you know, no fluff, um, giving value first, all of those uh, things that that people associate with you are as much a part of your brand as the name or the visual identity, yeah. the website or really the um you know glossy brochure or anything else that is is just a manifestation of the brand so i think for me one of the reasons why i wanted to interview you for for this strand is because you are quite unusual i think amongst the property community for really taking this seriously and really um having something that is consistent all the way through i think in terms of an unusual but quite compelling name and a nice visual identity, and obviously, as you. Yeah, I, I didn't realise that people. I, I never really took it that seriously, but a couple of people have said it, and maybe I am quite good at making stuff look nice and and all the rest of it. But it's a bit of a cop out, really, because all that really matters when you've got a business, well, the number one thing that matters is making money. If you can't make money, if you can't monetize what you're doing, you'll never scale and you'll never grow. But if you can make money and build the brand and all the rest of it, and all that helps, then then that's great. But the guy that said that brand's not important, presumably it just wasn't important to him because he just it obviously didn't appear on his priorities. Well, actually, I said to him, I said, I, I won't mention his name here, but I did say to him, actually, I think you've got quite a good brand. It's just not a particularly visual brand. And I mean, his developments were lovely. I mean, he did really, really nice work. But um, I, I don't know. I just think maybe he liked to be controversial. So um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. There's, but even when I was buying the houses in Reading, and we were just, I built a portfolio of eighty, about seventy-eight tenants, and it took me a couple of years, which is pretty quick, really, to find all the right properties and refurbish them and put the tenants in there and and set it all up. Um, but I was also doing some stuff in London at the time. But um, that was the first time we used Opelin as a brand. And we did go to great lengths to try and make sure that our product was superior and that there was lots of attention to detail. And um, I actually just went through all this on, on one of the modules for, for Tropolis and was explained to everyone like, in this picture, you, all you see is a nice room. But when I look at this picture, that light shade 
if you look in the mirror, you can see that the seam is on the back of that light shade. And that's for a reason, because even when you get down to the detail of how you take photos, all those little differences add up to the overall effect of something very, very nice. And occasionally people would mention my business in Reading to me without knowing that it was me that owned that business. I'd say to them, like, I've been investing in Reading for a few years and I've, this is what I've been doing. They say, ah, oh, there's another company in Reading that does that called Oplan. Have you come across them? I was like, yeah, yeah, that is, that, that is my business. So, so we built up a reputation for having a good product and putting the name on it as well, I think really helps. Um, and inevitably everybody then, you know, sets their sights on what you do. And they're like, right, I'm gonna do exactly what that guy does. And I'm gonna put a TV on the wall. And more and more of that started happening. It's like, I, I do a little website. Someone else does a little website. I'm gonna do this, someone else does that. I'm putting floor plans on my adverts. Everyone else putting floor plans on their adverts. And it's relentless. And what you have to do is not let that exhaust you. Just accept that that's how it is. And you just gotta keep staying ahead of the crowd and innovating and evolving. Yeah, definitely. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And if people are coming up behind you and doing what you do, then it is a sign that you're doing something right. And as you said, you just have to keep on growing, don't you? Yes, but I've, you've touched a nerve there. You're right. Imitation is a great form of flattery. But you can never be truly passionate about copying what someone else does. Like, I, I've always tried to... I've always looked to what other people do and you can't help noticing when someone does something good. It's a bit like if someone walks down the street and they're incredibly good looking, like it's a fact, they're remarkably good looking. Or if someone's done a, a stunning development or if someone's got an amazing brand or if something's just beautiful in its simplicity, you will notice those things because they stand out. But don't just try and rip off someone else's business because you won't get it all right and you're the key parts that are there behind the scenes you'll totally miss out on them the the, the one biggest part that will be missing is the the true passion and drive that comes from building your own thing in your own way and attracting your own people to what it is you're doing yeah i i absolutely love that matt which is why my event in knightsbridge was different and which is why my event in knightsbridge worked better than anyone else's at the time if i can brag Definitely. And really, I think what you're saying is that uh, entrepreneurship or good entrepreneurship is also a creative endeavor. I certainly feel that, that innovation, they call it innovation, but really coming up with new ideas and doing them in your own unique way, I think is what makes a business exciting for, uh, for many people. And not not just the founders, the people that are in the business, or I mean any of the stakeholders, the you know the clients or the customers or yeah. the the tenants. People pick up on that energy, don't they? Definitely, and it can be good energy and it can be bad energy, but people will pick up on it, and preferably you want to be given off some good energy, because otherwise you're going to attract some really miserable people. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting subject because I think. Um, the, the people that are at the, the head or the helm of any organization are really the ones that set the tone for that organization. As you said, there's good and bad energy, but I think this issue of ethics always comes through for me. And I think what happens is, is people's values and their ethics become amplified. I've noticed this time and time again. Yeah. So, um, this just it, it kind of ripples down throughout an organization and then it becomes part of the brand. 
So if you say a brand lacks integrity, it's often because the organization itself lacks integrity because the people at the top lack integrity. And those are the people, I would say those are not my tribe, but my tribe are the people who are different and who, you know, they have got values and that their values ripple out through the market and down through the business. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to say that my values are more important than anyone else's. I wouldn't say that for a minute. And uh, for some people, their business might be just about making money and integrity comes way down the list. And, um, and there'll be clients for them and there'll be clients for me. But I, I, I think you've got to embrace the fact that other people have got different values from you. And, and, and you're right, build your own tribe. Um, and you're, but yeah, your team will be a reflection of what, what is and isn't allowed within your organization. And uh, if there's one thing I would say actually, is that we live in such a transparent world these days, mm-hmm. that you may as well just be true to your values because you won't be able to fake it for very long. And if taking loads of money off everyone is more important to you than doing the right thing by them, then, you know, just crack on with it. Don't make any apology for it. Not that that's my MO. My MO is that I'm giving 15% of the profits from one of my businesses to charity just to prove that it's not about making loads of money out of everyone. That's really, really good. You know, and that's that's, that's powerful because so many people, they just – they get rich and then they just pull up the shutters and they don't care about other people. So I think that's amazing. Which charity did you give your profits to? So uh, since I started the club, Candor, we pledged 15% of our profits to charity. I've supported the 88 bikes since the very beginning. Yeah. So I, when I launched it, the whole thing, I actually launched it with off nothing, I, which is remarkable as well. Because whenever I hear all these people talking about start a business with no money, start a business with no money, I'm like, oh, what a load of rubbish. But actually, I've done it. I don't think yeah. well, I've actually done it, so maybe it can be done. Um, but I launched the club, and there was an instant profit, and I donated some to this charity that I'd already been supporting. So it gives bikes to victims of normally victims of um, uh, where they're, they're human trafficking victims. They've normally been forced into the sex trade, and I even flew to Cambodia to give out. Uh, we gave out like three hundred and fifty bikes in a week uh, via orphanages and schools and other local charities. So we supported them for a long time, but then when the lockdown kicked off, um, uh, I was actually really worried about my business because I was worried about all my clients' businesses. I thought if if half my clients get really badly walloped by this, then we're going to get carried out. So um, I think we've been donating like on a standing order a thousand dollars a month, and I paused that, and then then I realised that I didn't want to be living in fear during the lockdown. And that rather than allowing my flight mode to kick in, I wanted to engage my fight mode. And I upped the ante and I said, right, we've always done 15%. I even actually showed it to all our clients. I was like, don't bail out on the club now because I've said from day one, we'll give 15% to charity and we've done that. And here's the accounts. And the months where you see us giving more is us sponsoring your kids because you've asked us to. And the club is not expensive. We will get through this but stick with us and I'm going to up the ante and give 25% of our profits to charity during the lockdown. So we've been donating to PPE via one of the members of the club and, um, and one or two other people who've asked for donations and stuff. But if you actually have the balls to do it, you don't have to do it with your entire business because it might be a ridiculously large amount of money. But if you've got the, the balls to start doing it, um, it can be really powerful because people ask you to, you know, will you sponsor me? And you're like, yeah, I'll sponsor you. 
our sponsors, I gave like 300 quid to one guy's charity before you even joined the club. I said, I'm not giving you this so you join the club because I know you're going to join the club anyway. But I've given you this because you've told me 100% of this money will go to this charity. Oh, that's, that's so nice. And, you know, sometimes people outside of property, they have this idea that property investors or developers were just all greedy rich bastards. They are mostly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but not all of them. Not no, all not all of them. them. Not yeah. all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> yeah. So so what, what <laughs> so so what's the worst thing that you've seen over the last few years? What what's the what's the share something, share something that that Ponzi's. I really, I really, really, if you want to get my back up and really boil my, the Ponzi's, I fucking hate them. Okay, so let's tell people, because on the group, not everybody is in property, so they don't really understand what a Ponzi is or yeah. what a Ponzi in property is. So would you like to explain that? Thousands of people every year don't realise that they're putting their money into a Ponzi because it doesn't look like a Ponzi. Ponzi's don't look like Ponzi's. No. You just find out later that you've given your money to something and you never had a chance of getting it back. <clears throat> but they'll be all tagged up with logos that give it credibility. They'll probably have their lawyer's logo on there and maybe they'll have Ernst & Young's logo on there or Deloitte's logo on there or PwC's logo on there. And it will all look really credible and they'll talk about fixed return. And the return might, the return might be fairly sensible probably a very sensible return it doesn't sound very risky and the reason it doesn't sound very risky is because if they put the real return on there you wouldn't go anywhere near it because it would sound too risky so um and they'll say that there's security and there's a security trustee and it's got a charge and all the rest of it but you're you're, you're putting your money into something and you haven't got a chance of seeing it again and i can't believe how many of these things are out there but i've just every, over the last three years i've just seen more and more of them pop up yeah, um it's all these mini bonds they're, they're really bad news they're bad news for the developers because these people can outbid anybody because they haven't got to make a profit uh, they're really bad news for the the investors because they give 100 grand or 50 grand or 200 grand and they think they're getting income now because they're getting 10 percent per annum or eight percent per annum or it might be anything from seven percent to 15 percent but they won't see their money again. It, it goes like all these London capital and finance and all the rest. There's loads of them. And every now and then I have to speak to one of these fucking assholes and I can't keep my mouth shut. And then they have to have a go at me and I'm like, Oh God, I've got into another fight with a crook. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are crooks. And of course I've seen crooks. what happens is, is the money goes in and the next thing they're driving around in a McLaren. Or a, or a Ferrari or something, because they, they just, the money goes in and then off they go to the car showroom or, or the dealership or whatever. And uh, yeah, it happens, doesn't it? It does happen. But the one thing I've gotten better at in the last 12 months is I won't invest my energy into those issues. I, I keep, you know, there's nearly 200 clients in my club that pay us to keep them safe or to help promote them or to speak at our events and what have you. And they're all, you know, they're all, pretty you know, decent people running businesses or investing lots of money. And part of the benefit is that we'll, I mean, the club's called Candor for goodness sake. It's called Candor because I couldn't call it no bullshit. I didn't think it was going to be a very good name. Um, but we see this stuff. I, I see it too early as well. I, I, 
I now spot the the wrongans, the crooks and the ponzies and all the rest of it. I spot it way before other people do. And you, they don't thank you for it early on. You have to keep your mouth shut and you have to wait for it to come out in the wash. And then they realize that, you know, little Miss Lovely has been ripping everyone off all along or that this guy who they thought was amazing is, is just spunking everyone's cash. But but if you if, if you ask me if, if, if there's the wor- what's the worst thing I've seen is that because they're taking people's life savings and they're spunking it on a good time, and and uh, and they're spunking it on a, at a shot of becoming successful uh, that they never had in the first place because they haven't got the business acumen to run a profitable business. So yeah, and look, there's people popping up on here commenting like me too, Matt. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, I've seen a lot of it too. And, you know, that's probably a story for another day. It um, is because you've just made me break one of my golden rules, which is to stop talking about Ponzi's because it's bad energy. It's bad energy. I'd rather talk about branding. <laughs> I know. So uh, we haven't had any comments and I'm, I'm not sure what's what's happened, whether we've had an issue with the chat function, because I know that people were really excited about tonight. And I'm sure what's going to happen, Matt, is we're going to we're going to this, and then we're going to see this whole list list of questions that we haven't answered. I don't know if you've. I've just seen the first question pop up on there. Uh, if everyone can hear us, can you just say hello in the chats and let us know that uh, that you're there? You had some other. What were the other questions you were going to ask me about the branding and the naming? Yeah, the branding, the naming, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we've we've covered quite quite a lot, a lot of ground, really, Matt. Um, so let let's just say, what advice would you give anybody that has got a property investment platform? You're you know you're training on this now, and um, what what advice would you give somebody who's really interested? in becoming a property developer or oil investor where where would you where would you say is the best place to start i really need to get better at answering these questions because i'm going to get asked them a lot but everybody's got different situation different circumstances right so there's one guy who's just joined tropolis and he's got two million quid yes this is the guy who's got like a 70 grand a year job or the guy who's got a 50 grand a year job, they're just in different places and, and they're in different positions. So, um, you know, if you've got loads of money, go out and buy something, leave the banks out of the, out of the equation, don't work with any banks and get a builder on site and see if you can manage a builder. But you've got to start gaining experience and you've got to pick your entry point. What I wouldn't recommend you do is go out and get as much debt as you possibly can and get everybody involved as quickly as you can and and take loads of planning risk and try and you know become Nick Candy overnight because you'll get carried out you'll be like flashing the pan on Facebook yes exactly and I've seen that as well so so if you want to get started in property and whether you have a lot of money and you, you just haven't haven't dabbled in property or with it up until now or if you're just a beginner, perhaps you're working in a job and you're thinking, how can I secure my future? Yeah. Actually um, acquire some assets that eventually I could pass on to, to my the next generation. Yeah. Um, then don't the message is don't do it alone. Um, no. Start off by by um, engaging with um, Matt's platform, which is Tropolis. 
or if you if you want to take it a step further just tell me if i'm saying the right thing um join uh candle as a as well a candle's a bit different like that just because someone will give us their credit card details doesn't mean we'll take their money it yeah. is exclusively for people who are actively doing deals above a million quid okay okay right but, um the benefit of Tropolis is you don't have to travel anywhere to join it let me give you an example when we first started Tropolis, i've got a guy in new york who, who builds hospitals because he's vice president of construction for a healthcare business. Yes. And the next hospital he builds is $600 million, but he doesn't know how to do his own deals with his friends and family. So he's, he's joined Tropolis because, you know, that's part of what we help people work out how to do. Um, there's all sorts of different ways. It depends how much work you want to do and how much work you don't want to do. When I started, I bought a flat with my brother. We tried to improve it and make some money and we didn't. My brother ended up holding it for a long period of time and it went, I think we paid two hundred and five thousand pounds for it. Now it's worth like seven hundred and fifty grand. Wow! Uh, but he's held it for he's held it for eighteen years. Um, and then the second stuff I bought, I bought flats in the middle of the credit crunch. I was quite happy running my business and paying myself a salary, and the business was making money and building up um, value in its in its on its balance sheet. Um, but a friend of mine was doing a deal on 12 flats that Barrett couldn't sell in the middle of the middle of the credit crunch. And I broke all the rules. You're not supposed to buy new build. Um, but this was distressed. And it was, it was, I'll just drop my pen. This was, this was distressed and it was very cheap. And, uh, and my friend was buying one. I thought, right, well, if he's buying one, it must be all right. So I'll follow him into the deal. And everyone told me on the way into the deal that I was going to lose all my money. So all my friends that worked in the city, all my friends that had property, they all said, don't buy any property now. You're mad. You'll lose all your money. And I couldn't find anyone that said it was a good idea. And I've, and I've said this so many times, but I figured that confidence in property couldn't be any lower. Therefore, prices couldn't be any cheaper. And I didn't just buy one. I bought two. And as I went back to buy a second one, they were all like, oh, you might actually be right on this. And when you look back at the grass, February 2009 was the very bottom of the market. Right. But then in the next breath, I would caution you, like, don't just because you get it right once, don't get too confident because... Um, property has a way of uh, teaching you lessons when you get a little bit too uh, comfortable. You know, inevitably you'll hire a builder who's lousy, or you'll buy something you shouldn't have bought, or you'll take a punt on something that goes wrong. Uh, and that's that, those are the ones you you always learn more when things go wrong than you yeah. learn when things go right. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, um, we all make mistakes, don't we? We all we all get things wrong. And as you said, that th those are also our biggest um, learning uh, opportunities, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, if there's if, if there's half a dozen things you can improve to increase your performance, um, it might be the way you recruit people, or it might be your brand, or it might be your systems or your tools, or it might be the way that you handle stress, or it might be the way that you handle failure. If there's one thing I could have seriously improved um, when I had to shut down Kin, Kin was a massive success. There was like four million pounds there when I closed it. But I cried my eyes out and thought the whole world had ended. And really, I should have just gone off to the pub and had a pint and be like, right, what should we do with this four million quid? But I didn't. I, it was heartbreaking. I was like, geez, I, I should have, someone should have come along and give me a kick up the arse. But like, what I'm saying is I should have failed faster and failed better and bounced back quicker and bounced back faster because I wasted time. Right, right, right. And do you think maybe that was a confidence thing? Just experience, confidence and experience? Yes, I guess it's a bit like getting dumped the first time. The first time you get dumped, you know, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? But 
Michael, I, I, I doubt you've ever been dumped. You're far too good looking. But when you, when you look like me, you get dumped all the time. And uh, I've been uh, right on to the next one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here tonight. It's been such a lovely interview. And as I said, I don't know what's happened to the chat, but I know that somebody will have been asking questions. So maybe we'll just have to answer them after. I bet they're all on my Facebook Live. Probably, yeah, yeah. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, but before we go, tell everybody what happened with the police today. We, we did finally, they finally caught up with me. Yeah, they caught up with you. So come on, Matt. What did you do? Must have been my Ponzi. <laughs> oh, no, you don't get arrested for running a Ponzi. It's totally legal. No, oops. Um, it was, no, it was my neighbour. It was my neighbour. I, I had to jump out. All these police arrived outside. There was like there was like three police cars and about there was at least ten police officers, and uh, they were going to kick her door down. But I, I knew she was in there. She just she doesn't have any family and she needs some help. So I ran around. So not a cannabis farm next door. No, no, not no. not on this occasion. Not in this neighbourhood. No, 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 Wimbledon. No. <laughs> not many cannabis farms or, or no. the funny thing was the police couldn't jump over the wall the, the other neighbor was there and they, they were laughing because the cops couldn't get over the wall i had to do it for them <laughs> but anyway she's okay she's okay now yeah that, that well that's good news all right then well thank you so much for joining us tonight matt it's been great to have you here again and um thank you very much if you listened in this is going to go out on the um, YouTube channel and also on the Smart Connected podcast as well. What? You're going to publish it? I've cleaned up my language. Yeah. I don't, no, no, don't worry about that. Well, we can edit it out if you if you want. But it's just going to be like one long bleep, though. It'll be like when Reza Merton came and spoke at my event in Knightsbridge. Let's <laughs> <laughs> do, do bleeps. I'll speak to the... <laughs> make it quite fun actually because people will be guessing what you're saying you could put fake bleeps in there as well to make me look bad <laughs> yeah that's right okay thanks very much for having me thank you so much for being here and see you soon cheers take care see you later thanks for listening to the smart connector podcast if you've enjoyed this episode why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.